God, Ashy, I swear to God. It's <laughs> probably yelling about the idea of there was a time and a place where, you know, just men could run wild and, you know, women just, you know, would, I guess, either support them or be terrified. No, I think he's yelling at my fiance because she's in a fucking meeting and he wants attention. Look at me! I got that, Jen! See, in my head, it's just that scene where the Joker's filming the guy in the Dark Knight. Look at me! He's like, you see, this is how crazy Naomi's made me. If, she, if you want order, she has to pet me right now. Why and is every everyone kid- yelling right now? Bird, I swear to God, I will come out there and fight you. I just hear a gunshot. I'm like, wow, this really is a noir Vember episode. Because in one of the movies, there was a guy who came in and just started talking like, yeah, see? And I'm like, who are you? His name's Humphrey Bogart. It wasn't Humphrey Bogart. It was a different guy. It was in They Live By Night. He just like starts talking like, like, he's like, yeah, see, yeah. I mean, that is kind of Bogart's dialect, though, if you think about it. Like, even his, you're just like, you're like, all I can kind of hear is just that kind of Sam Spadey, like, like cadence that he has. Mm-hmm. I thought I had a, a bit ready for this, but I really don't. So grab some hooch, get in your jalopy, and motor on over to the next part in our noir series, which is some classic noirs. Nick Gray. End of your Welcome, everybody, to TWGTF, or as everybody knows it, from a place in the night to a very lonely place. This is Two White Guys Talking Film. I'm, of course, your host, Ben. And I'm Tyler. How are you, my friend? I'm good. There is some squeaking going on I don't in the hear back. It. Do you not hear it? No. Oh, okay. It's, I was like, it's driving me up a goddamn wall. Is it on your end or mine? It's on my end. Oh, okay, okay. I was like, yeah, I'm not hearing a thing. Okay, that's good. Oh, no, like it's someone... a squeaky man. <laughs> it sounded like someone was just fucking playing with a squeaky toy outside. That's what's driving anyway. me in Spain right now. And I'm Tyler. You want me to say that one more time? No, you did it the right... You said it the first time. I said it right the first time? Okay, yeah, good. you said and I'm Tyler. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's the second week of Noir November. We've got some classic noirs on deck, but before we get to that, we have to obviously talk about the best thing we saw this week. So, Tyler, what was the best thing you saw this week? Most captivating thing I saw this week. Ben, I'm going to give you a choice. Uh-huh. I can either give you the fucking art house. Tyler bullshit or the weird Tyler bullshit. Will either of these be featured on a best of the end of the year list this year? No. Okay. I'm going to go with the weird. The weird. Okay. So 
once again. I feel like we've. T- I feel like I've brought them up constantly, but my friends over at Agfa, and I call them my friends because I've given them probably about like three hundred dollars, maybe just, maybe just like three hundred dollars this year or so. Have partnered once again with Bleeding Skull to put out a fucking super weird shot on video classic called Boarding House, and I think I brought up Boarding House in our '90s horror movie discussion about movies that are shot on video and. All that stuff. Mm. Boarding House was the first movie ever shot on video that was like public, that was like released, and it's one of the only ones that ever got like a theatrical release. They mm. took the original video cassette cut and then scanned it onto thirty-five, then blow it up and then released it theatrically under. It was given the arraignment that it was on shot on horror vision. Which is hilarious. So wait, is um, this like Spooky Vision in South Park where they just put Barbara Streisand's face in like every corner of the screen? No, no, it, no. It's, oh, okay. it's because it looks it looks wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's um, shot on video. Of course it looks wrong. I don't know if you ever went and saw like a movie like in that period where like digital was becoming more prevalent to be shot on, but there were still showing films on 35. And so things just kind of like looked weird. <laughs> You'd be like, why does this look wrong? You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. Because there wasn't like digital protect- projection at the time. So you're so like putting in the new beautiful restoration or the beautiful like 2K scan, it's like this like weird, it's like looking at something through a glass darkly. It's like, Three things removed from what it was originally. It's like watching a digital playback of a 35 scan of a film that was shot on video. It really hurts my brain to look at and think of. And it doesn't help that the movie is also fucking insane. Premise is... Let me just read what the letterbox IMDB write-up is. Resembling a cross between the Amityville Horror and Playboy Playmates video, this film tells the terrifying tale of a cheesy video special effect that stalks bikini-clad women. In between scenes of them playfully splashing each other and wrestling with each other over bathing suit tops, they're murdered and or terrorized by horrific hallucinations. These hallucinations include seeing blood on the shower stalls while they're trying to lather up having a giant monsters jump out of the hall closet and seeing their faces temporarily turn into rubber Halloween masks. It is, I think, about someone who has the ability of telekinetics stalking and attacking these women, but also also about a dude who opens up a boarding house and like sleeps with everyone in the boarding house and oh hey that's also the guy who wrote and directed the movie and oh hey one of the other women is his wife it is just such a weird artifact and i i love it so much and you paid for this movie yeah you you bought this on i'm assuming blu-ray i pre-ordered it Ah, you you pre-ordered it. I saw it it went up, and I was like, need to have it. Been waiting to watch this forever. Well, to quote Kramer when Jerry asks, what did I just pay for? You're a John. That's what's going on here. Clearly, Agva is just whoring itself out to you, and you're you're addicted to 
whatever is going on here. So I'm going to need you to write me down Agfa's phone number, and I'm going to take it from you so you don't have it anymore. And we're going to get you off of this. We're going to get you onto some nice, solid, wholesome entertainment. I'm just going to say right now, I'm not a John. I am a Mark. They're two different things. <laughs> sure they are. Sure they are. Take a look in the mirror. Write, write, it, write both words down and tell me how many letters they have. Move them around. Pretty much spells the same thing. No, you are a Mark, it does sound like, for this. And so much so that sometimes your Markiness can transfer over and spill over onto other people because I also saw something that you're mildly responsible for. Now, I could talk about French Dispatch and how it might be my new number one of 2021. I could talk about Last Night in Soho and say how I feel upon second watch that movie's going to get better and better. But unfortunately, the most captivating thing I saw came in a little movie yesterday morning when I was just dialing around and I said to myself, you know, I purchased something like a week ago on Amazon that he had recommended and I still hadn't actually sat down to watch it. And I sat down and I watched Shinjuku Triad Society. Yeah. And I got to tell you, my friend, there's more sodomy in that movie than I thought there was going to be. Yeah, there is. Yeah. yeah. I was sitting there. I was like, I was like, wow, sodomy. And then like 20 minutes later, I'm like, more sodomy. I'm like, this yeah. is surprising. It's a fucking wild movie. I'm now obsessed with trying to find that ABC's t-shirt for you. So you can just go as that person for Halloween next year. Oh, yeah. I would love that. I would I would have to explain it to everybody. But nah. yeah. No, that's that's their problem. If they haven't seen Shinjuku Triad Society, I didn't know this was a Takashi Miike film. That's that's the first thing. Um, <laughs> all, all I remember you saying about this when I was editing was, "Yeah, someone gets their throat cut, and my God, does that guy bleed? And my God, does he? And it's in the first ten minutes. Mm-hmm. He bleeds. Yeah, does he? Ooh, he bleeds. I kind of like this movie in the way that, like, it's a movie where at the end of it, you're like, well, who won? Because like, I don't think anyone did Even the police it's, didn't win A very classic tagline No matter who wins we all lose Yes From Alien versus Predator mm-hmm. It's funny you bring that up I've been saying up. that a lot lately The one I've been saying is sorry Jack Chucky's back That's that's the one I've been saying a lot lately I don't that's even know great. why That is very fun Yeah but I like I like Shinjuku Triad Society. The dude who plays the main antagonist in it, I really wish that guy was in more because he's just got like a perfect villain face. He yeah, he just looks like a dude who he just looks rough. Do you know this movie is not going to pull punches when in the first ten minutes a guy lays a uh, like a folding chair across a woman's face? Oh yeah. And it's like it's not even he doesn't even fold it up. He hits her with like the spoke end and it's yeah. real rough. One would say the business end of that chair. Oh yeah. That's a crazy movie, dude. I'm so glad you and it's it's his first film too. It's not his Well, it's his first, first theatrical. It's like the first one that got any sort of exposure in America. Let me rephrase. It's his first theatrical one because the rest of them say video. Oh yeah, yeah. They're yeah, all like, like weird J video movies. Yeah, but this on a big screen, holy crap, I can't even imagine. Terrifying, claustrophobic, awful. I agree and disagree at the same time. I think I would really enjoy this on a big screen because. Oh, it, no, no, yeah, no. I, I, really I mean all of those to... words as positives. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, name the show already. 
Shinjuku Triad Society is also too like it's a movie too where like you think certain people are gone and then they just start showing back up. Mm-hmm. They start showing back up and worse. Yes, it's very true. If people are Rasputin in that movie, where you're just like, well, that person's gone, and you're like, oh, look who's back. I'll be danged. Can't kill him. He's Rasputin. Yes, exactly. Starts well, dance. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that takes us comfortably on to our first movie of the evening for Noir Vember. And these are both Nicholas Ray movies who I didn't really Nicholas know Ray. Who I didn't really know anything about. But believe me, I'm I'm gonna be looking into his stuff further from here. And Nicholas Ray's first movie we're gonna be talking about is actually his first movie. And it is a noir about youth in love and in trouble with the law. Ray's debut feature is not only impressive in storytelling, but also as a depiction of of the spirit of American youth in revolt. O'Donnell and Granger are on fire every moment they share the screen together. This is, of course, the 1948 film, They Live by Night. Do you do the Marion? That's my business. I have a $30 wedding which gives a complete recording of the ceremony on records. I have a $20 wedding. Will you just marry us? That'll be $20. Tilly, Herman? Who are they? My sister and her husband. Witnesses. We have to have them? Oh, yeah. First, you gotta sign your names over here. If you'll. Uh, just sign the register. Now, uh, rent your ring for a dollar or sell you one for five. I'll buy one. Um, this one will do it. virtue of the power vested in me, I hereby perform this wedding ceremony. Do you, Catherine, take this man, Arthur, as your lawful wedded husband, to love, honor, and cherish henceforth? I do. Do you, Arthur, take this woman, Catherine, as your lawful wedded wife, to love, honor, and cherish henceforth? I do. Well, put the ring on her finger. Uh, by virtue of the power vested in me, I now pronounce her husband and wife. Tip him each a dollar. Wish all the health, happiness, and wealth in the world. Herman, you got a cold. I'm sorry. I have. 
That'll be twenty dollars plus five for the ring. <coughs> You don't think much of my way of marrying people, do you? I sure don't. Well, me neither. But I'm giving folks what they want. To my way of thinking, folks ought to have what they want. As long as they can pay for it. You folks driving? No. Come in on the bus? No. You ain't aiming to get a hitch. That's no way to start a honeymoon. Have you got any ideas? Well, maybe I could fix you up with a car. Maybe. Party I know took in a new convertible today. How long will it take? If it means money, this party will be over in his nightshirt. Shall I? I like this a lot. Sorry, I was on mute. Muted my TV so that I could uh, turn it on because it's playing on TCM currently. They live by night is? Yep. That's like weird. Right now, on, on the East Coast feed. That's weird. That is really weird. Yeah. Um, although it is November and TCM does just do noirs like all month so i'm sorry did we rip off noir vember no okay cool i'm just making no. sure noir i'm not gonna was give ben I... mankowitz a goddamn dime let me tell you no. right now but noir vember getting... is something i saw on twitter so oh fair enough okay well then it's nobody's yeah not, not until we trademark it it's free use yeah i really liked this oh it's good yeah it's good it's very impressive, like, how good everyone is in it and, like, how competent it feels for, like, a first movie. And it it doesn't feel bloated in any way. Most first movies feel like there's something you could take out. I don't think this has anything you could take out. No, it's so tight and well-constructed that I didn't even watch all of it. I just turned it on and was like, oh, I remember all of this. And like, I was like, okay, cool. I can just watch in a lonely place. Like I, it's just so lean and kind of perfect. Not like perfect in that, like it is a flawless movie, but like perfect in that. I think from what I've read about the, the about the production of this movie, Nick Ray had spent like a decade with this movie in his head and finally was able to get it made. Really? Yeah, so it comes from a book called Thieves Like Us, which mm -hmm. in and of itself was also made into a movie by Robert Altman in the 70s. But he took only like one sort of snippet out of it, which is the like love story. And That's the whole movie. Yeah, he took one snippet out of the book. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. It was bought by RKO in 1941, and apparently... Ray loved the book because he had spent time in the area that the book takes place in because he was part of the Department of Agriculture. He wrote a treatment and RKA just kind of kept bouncing the treatment around until a new production chief came in in 1947 who was like known for giving young filmmakers chances. And so he was just like, whatever, yeah, make it for however much money we have lying around. And he did. He went out and he made it and it didn't do well, but they were like, this kid is he makes movies on time he makes them on the cheap you know and so it was the start of one of the for a long time underrated american auteurs of the 50s and i think now he's kind of started to finally get his due with sort of the generation of critics criterion put on a bunch of his films and so I think Nick Ray's finally getting that like 
canonized spot on American filmmakers. I mean, I'll say this too. Terrence Malick owes him a letter of apology as well because it feels like Badlands kind of ripped this off to a certain extent. <laughs> Although, if I had to retitle this movie with the same kind of thing, it would be called Sadlands because this movie Badlands, is it's yeah. weird. It's weird how they don't ever let you not be on the side of Kichi and Bowie. If you're not on Kichi and Bowie's side at any point in this movie, like you need to stop watching this movie because that's who's correct in this movie. Mm-hmm. And Nick Ray is also just really good at making people who are innocent feel like the most innocent people in the whole world. He also makes people who are innocent feel guilty throughout a lot of the movie, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's that's for later. This movie starts off with three guys escaping from a prison, and they are Chickamaw, T-Dub, and Bowie. And Chickamaw is played by... Yeah, (laughs) T-Dub. He is a white guy, by the way, so surprise there. He's played by J.C. Flippin. Chickamaw is played by Howard DeSilva, and Farley Granger plays Bowie. Farley Granger is your main character, and they go on hideout at this gas station. They're paying off the guy who runs the gas station to keep quiet, and he has a daughter whose name is Kichi, and she's played by Kathy O'Donnell. And Bowie and Kichi kind of find each other in this weird mixed up world and they kind of make a connection. Yeah, it's the, the like one of those like m- crazy mixed up kind of kids. And it becomes a couple on the run movie. And halfway through, I, like halfway through, like the movie sort of starts as like a typical noir after a job kind of went a little south. You have these three dudes hold up, and then, you know, it's like one more job, and we can all go our separate ways, and we're doing, we all have reasons that we're doing it, and it's a noir, and everything just goes fucking south. <laughs> you know what I, I mean? mean? Like, yeah, I mean that's that's kind of what it is, huh? Just everything goes south. But the thing is, too, unlike a noir, where like. Most of the time in noirs, like the two people on the run kind of already know each other. This is like a real getting to know you kind of thing. And like, I don't know how Nicholas Ray did this. And he does it in both movies. I legitimately believe that those two people are dating and in a relationship. Like the way she looks at Bowie, the way Kichi looks at Bowie, I'm just like, I'm like, that girl's in love with him. For a first movie, what I think is so great about it is that either whoever was doing the cinematography was just a real, real lean, mean cinematography machine, or Nick Ray always knew where to put a camera. And this is even more prevalent within A Lonely Place. His camera placements are like perfect for the scene that they're in. You know what I mean? I was actually marveling on the second movie that we'll talk about. But just watching, like, the way the scene unfolds and, like, the blocking, I'm like, it's so crazy how assured he is for someone who's like, this is his first movie that he's directing. Well, that shot where they're both laying on the ground and, like, one of their heads is going one way and the other is going the other way. Like, he really does understand, like, not only, like, how to frame a shot, but he also knows how to let his people act in that shot that makes it the most effective. There's a scene where they're driving together, and Kichi 
looks over at him and says, and it's it's nothing really special about the shop, but like there's something about how he does it where like she says, do you know how much I love you? And then you're just like, damn, that's really effective. Like also too, just like he gives time to let these two kind of like get together and eventually like, because both of them are like weirdly kind of cynical, if that makes sense, but also are like weirdly kind of ignorant about different parts of the world. Yeah. And also you get just this feeling that this kid, like the the main kid, is just he's just a baby. He's twenty-three. He was in prison for seven years. You don't think he wants to do wrong anymore. No. Like he's <sighs> a child. It is true. It is true. Twenty twenty-three. Who who knew what anyone was doing back then? And I mean and Kichi kinda like sets him straight, like and doesn't like set him straight, but like when he meets it's Kichi. He's like, I don't want to do that anymore. He's like, I want to be. A, he's like, like the biggest punishment is they can't go out together. Like, yeah. he has to stay hidden. Which, where the title comes from. Well, yeah, because they do live by night. I think the thing is, is, is that he, Bowie wants to be a good person and clearly wants to be a good person before he meets Kichi. It is the fact that he, you know, was in jail and he knows these people and it's, it's, he's already kind of set down this path in life. And so when he meets Kichi, he does, he takes like that initiative to become a better person. Yeah. He says like, maybe I can go to them after a couple of years and prove like I'm not that person anymore. And the only thing that keeps really tripping him up is the people he's associated with. And even she points that out. And he says, I know he goes, but he goes, these two guys got me out. And that's Chickamaw and T-Dub, which I got to tell you, man, the dude who plays Chickamaw is so fucking good in this movie. Like, yeah. All that like weird makeup he has for the one eye thing. Like, I don't know. It's, it's kind of weirdly perfect. It's weirdly a great movie about like trying to go straight and like your past sins kind of dragging you back in. Mm-hmm. And even as like a 23 year old, the pain of, you know, the past catching up with you, it's just like you're 23. You shouldn't have a past. Like, it's so sad. What else did Fairleigh Granger and uh, Kathy O'Donnell do? Fairleigh Granger worked with Hitchcock a couple of times, notably as one of the murderers in Rope and as I think the main dude in Strangers on a Train, one of the great it Hitchcock is, yeah. films. Where do you put that in his in Firmly his in, I think, okay, so here's my thing with Hitchcock. I think with Hitchcock, you have firmly, like, top shelf, like, stone-cold classics. And you have, like, A tier. And then you have, like, like that's, like, that's, like, in between the top shelf and then, like, the middle shelf, which is, like, kind of all of the weirder stuff. I think Strangers on a Train is not, like, stone-cold masterpiece level with, like, Psycho and all of that, but, like, firmly in, like, the A tier of, like, this is a really good movie. Mm-hmm. Rope, I, mean, I, I think, is also I firmly think... in the A tier of this is a good movie. I think Rope is, like, one of the most underappreciated in his, in his, like, people love it, but, like, I still think, like, people aren't seeing, like, how good Rope is for, like, what he was doing for the time. Because he I essentially shot time... a stage play. He was the first person to ever make a movie look like it was one, you yeah. know, or not like one take, but like, you know, like yeah. not a whole lot of cuts, which he is pretty job incredible. It. Yeah, it's it's very impressive. And what about Kathy O'Donnell? What What is this young lady? At the time, Kathy O'Donnell 
was actually the bigger star because she had appeared in one of the biggest movies of all time, The Best Years of Our Lives by William Wilder. She was like the fifth or sixth billed person um, in the cast. She was also in like B movies like Bury Me Dead and The Amazing Mr. X. Outside of that, <sighs> there's not really a lot that I know that I've seen. I've seen or I've heard of Detective Story. She worked with Wilder a lot, I guess three times. There's an Edgar Ulmer movie called Love of Three Queens, a.k.a. The Face of a Thousand Ships, <sighs> which, you know, you know, she's worked with a lot of really good directors. Anthony Mann is another one. But it appears what she kind of did for the back half of her career, I should say, was a bunch of TV and I'm also not really well versed in TV of the 60s and 70s, so I've never heard of any of this. Or the 50s Except and 60s, I should say. Stuff for Bonanza and Perry Mason. Bonanza. Bonanza. I know that they shot where I used to live. That's true. It, it is shot out there. And one of my favorite all time jokes in a movie is he goes you ever notice bonanza about bonanza is about a 70 year old man and his 55 year old sons <laughs> so the two of them are kind of on the run she's on the run by proxy with hit with bowie because of that and what is what is your favorite scene in this movie because i have a particular one my favorite scene is when they get married i absolutely love same, the marriage. same same right it's so tense it's like a weird game of cat and mouse, but like the the cat doesn't know it's a cat, and the mouse is very scared. Well, it's also too where like, well, who do you think is the mouse in that situation? I think. Well, I think for most of the movie, they're the mouse. Oh, you think both of them are the mouse? Yeah. Me. Oh, see, I think I think I think Bowie's the mouse and she's the cat. Like, but she isn't aware of like the power she has over him, which is what makes it so innocent. Like, like there's a scene in it where like they're driving, I think after they've been married and like, she says, you'll have to teach me about this kiss and stuff. And you're like, oh, they're both just ignorant to the world. Like she knows only of that gas station and like maybe like 10 miles beyond it. And like all he's known is like prison most of his life. And like, like just kind of the hardships of like what you have to do. It also kind of sucks that he starts getting a reputation as like this, like great, like bank robber. Mm -hmm. The bank robbing scene is interesting. Because Absolutely it, love it, it actually. It, the casing of the bank robbery scene. Yeah. Like the casing of the bank and it, it, it basically serves as a bank robbing scene because like there isn't actually, it's kind of like gun crazy where they don't show any of the actual. I thought of, of the same thing. But, like, like, you know that they're professionals. Or as professionals, uh, professional as you can be in, like, robbing a bank. <laughs> yeah, very true. They rob this bank and everything looks like it's going to work out. They're hiding out. They're having a good time. And then all of a sudden, like, his two partners come back into the picture and they're like, we need to rob another bank. We've blown all of our money, even though it seems like you've done pretty okay. And... They kind of pull Bowie back into this life, and Kichi's like, don't go with them. They're going to get you killed. And Kichi's 100% right. Like, Chickamaw mm. and T-Dub are bad news. But Bowie kind of owes them because they took him with him to get off of the, get out of the, the prison. You know exactly where this train's going 
if you've ever seen like any noir ever. However, <laughs> you're so like so distraught, and you're just like, just don't do it. Well, you really care about these I'm, people. It's so well, good. unlike most noirs, where you're like, well, you got what you deserved. Unlike Sunset Boulevard, where like you're like, well, that dude kind of was playing her, and like kind of like played both sides against the middle or double indemnity where it's like, well, that dude was just straight up breaking the law. Most of the time in a noir, when someone like takes it in the back or like gets gunned down by the police by the end, you're like, well, yeah, you kind of fucking had it coming. This might be one of the few, if maybe the only example of noir where I can say, yeah, I would have really liked them to get away. Like I would have, I would have enjoyed seeing those two like end up on a beach together being like, we did it. We got away. Because Bowie never hurts anybody. Bowie never hurts anybody, but here's the thing. Is you know it has to end a certain way because of the time the movie was Mm -hmm. made. You know what I mean? Like, yep. you got that code. That pesky little code. You know what's going to happen. And it you just... As soon as soon as the movie starts now, I guess, as an old person, you're just like, or as a person that knows the past... I should say, you're just like, well, I know exactly where this is going, and I'm I'm upset. You are upset, for sure, but here's the other part of it, too. You're also kind of glad it ends that way, because it's kind of a perfect ending. Mm-hmm. And, it is a perfect ending. Yeah, and you know whose fault it is? It's that fucking bitch Maddie's fault, Helen Craig, because she wants to get her husband out of jail, and mm-hmm. she kind of sells them out. Fuck Maddie. How dare you ruin young love? This is the first time I've actually been mad at the ending of a noir where I'm like, oh, fuck you guys. Really? This is how we decided to go about it? Like, this is really, we couldn't let these two kids just be free together? Nope. It is brutal. It really is. It really is. It's got some moments of levity, though. I love the scene where he's buying her that watch, like, encasing the bank mm-hmm. at the same time full of just really great scenes the thing is it's it's hard to talk about because like the movie's very simple it's about this couple on the run and just kind of like the choices they have to make to kind of like keep together mm-hmm. unlike badlands though they're not they're not like by the end of it you're like that girl wants out like she's with bowie to the end mm-hmm. yes exactly the thing is but the thing about badlands is it takes this couple on a run this bonnie and clyde scenario and kind of subverts it because it's like what if Clyde was actually a bad person and it's more like not to segue completely into our second film but it is more like the second film than it is the the former film on this double feature well I mean that movie's only set in one place whereas Badlands kind of traverses a terrain I mean I think we can both agree this is this is a really solid movie is there anything else you want to you want to speak on about this before we get to Um, movie number two yeah, I love any movie where they're they're like someone's like robbing the bank, and then someone comes up and is like, "Hey, Mister, you got the time?" And they have to be like, "Get the fuck out of here!" <laughs> he does yeah, push that guy down. <laughs> get the car! Get the car! Oh, that is a that is a good sequence. I do like that. Uh, also, too, I, I love that anytime you bring up Chickamaw's one eye, he loses his mind. Yeah. <laughs> What's crazy about? Nicholas Ray, who I do want to talk about a little bit, is the bulk of his career is like from 1949 to 1963. 
which, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a long period of time. In 1951, he co-directs a movie with Ida Lupino, although he is billed as the director. It's called On Dangerous Ground. It's his sixth movie, and it's only two years after the first. And for whatever reason, when I watched that, I was like, oh, yeah, Nick Ray, 100% a steady hand by this point. And I'm, I'm now thinking about it, I'm like, it was only two years since his first movie. That's insane work rate. On Dangerous Ground. On Dangerous Ground. It is noir starring Ida Lupino and Robert Ryan. It's the first movie where Ida Lupino, Ida Lupino who wanted to direct, helmed some scenes for it, of it. And then she ended up directing her first film, which is The Hitchhiker, which is a great little noir. Interesting. I've seen Ida Lupino. What else do I know Ida Lupino from? I think she's, she's famous in radio, if I'm not mistaken. She may have been. She's also in a bunch of movies. Like, like a fucking, just a shit ton of B-movies. Oh, she's in High Sierra. That's where I know her. Speak of which. Yes, exactly. Well, before we get to that, what would your what would your pitch for this movie be? Hey, Nick Ray, one of the great American directors was considered by the French to be like one of the best American directors of his time period. I think there's a France Watcher quote or um, a Jean-Luc Godard quote that's like essentially there is no director better than Nicholas Ray. His first movie, it's real good. It's real. It's just it's a real good pop boiler noir. It also makes no delusions of grandeur and it's a couple on the run movie so it's like just like boom 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 you know just people in cars anyway i see that the elevator is getting ready to hit your floor so i'll let you go what would you pair with this there's a lot that you could pair with this i'm gonna go with a couple the first one is the aforementioned high sierra which i think is just a fucking great Humphrey Bogart movie. It was like one of the first Humphrey Bogart movies I ever watched. Just It was on TCM. There's a Humphrey Bogart marathon. And I was like, I love this guy. I'm just going to watch as many of these as I can. And I saw like High Sierra, Key Largo, a little bit of In a Lonely Place, just all back to back to back to back. And High Sierra tore me up. I also saw a really early one called The, the Devil's Kitchen, which is not a very good movie in which Humphrey Bogart <laughs> plays a teacher at like a day, like a boy's orphanage or something like that. It's not too good. Um, it's hard to imagine Humphrey Bogart as a teacher. It's a very interesting movie, but it's also not very good. Um, it's a very young Bogart. It's from like 31 or 32. Anyway, another movie I'm going to compare it with is the 1937 Fritz Lang, You Only Live Once. One of the great movies from one of the great directors. And I think it was one of his first American movies, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know. You only live once. And of course, if you want the inversion of this from the 60s, there's always Bonnie and Clyde. That's true. Or Badlands from like the, what is that, the 80s? 70s. Is that the 80s? 70s. 70s. Let's see, do we have an 80s version of this too? No. Probably. probably fucking yeah i don't true. know that movie that the double indemnity movie body oh yeah oh yeah body heat is kind of that isn't it yeah couples in trouble movies is what this could fall under in a subgenre. yeah it's the one where you really you really feel kind of just bad for you feel just kind of bad for this couple or the other ones you're like you're all gonna get what you deserve 
Y'all gonna get what you deserve. What do you What do you give this? I give this. I think upon second rewatch, um, first time I watched it, I give it four and a half. I'm probably gonna lean to like four. I don't really ever do this, but like four and the uh, whatever in between a half is four and one four fourth. And a quarter. Four and a four quarter. and a quarter. That's funny you say that. That's um, exactly what I give it. It's fucking good. It is. It's a really, really strong, like, first movie, and it's kind of amazing to think that this was his first movie, and you would have to say to yourself, well, it can only go up from here, and you're absolutely correct. Guess what? Yes. Because the next movie we're going to talk about comes two years later and is a great example of holding off on the answer to a question in a film till almost the very last moment. Bogart delivers the unique and underrated performance of a career that both stretches him not only as an actor, but as a person as well. One part mystery mixed with problems that are still as relevant and necessary to discuss as they were 70 years ago. And if you guys don't believe anything that I've said as the praise I've heaped on it already, here's the next thing I'll say about it. This is on par in, in terms of a noir with Sunset Boulevard. This is the 1950 movie starring Humphrey Bogart and Gloria Graham. This is Nicholas Ray's In a Lonely Place. Wouldn't you say that taking a check room girl home for the purpose of hearing a story was rather an eccentric thing to do? Oh, I'd say it was a very practical idea. She'd read the book and I hadn't. If you only wanted her to tell you a story, why'd you take it to your place? Because I work at home. You had no other reason for asking you to go with you? Well, if I had, I didn't do anything about it. Did she have a drink at your house? Yes, yeah, she had a glass of ginger ale with a twist of lemon in it. It's known as a horse's neck. The glass is still on my desk, complete with fingerprints. I can assure you I didn't wash the dishes. I was too tired. You gave her $20. Quite a large sum for cab fare. Well, she'd give me valuable service. Was it two tens? Yes, but uh, don't ask me to identify the bills. Why didn't you call for a cab? Isn't that what a gentleman usually does under the circumstances? Oh, I didn't say I was a gentleman. I said I was tired. You're told that the girl you were with last night was found in Benedict Canyon, murdered. Dumped from a moving car. What's your reaction? Shock? Horror? Sympathy? No, just petulance at being questioned. A couple of feeble jokes. You're puzzling, Mr. Steele. Well, I grant you the jokes could have been better, but I don't see why the rest should worry you. That is, unless you plan to arrest me for lack of emotion. What else did she tell you about this fellow she broke her date with? No more than I've already told you. Some more coming. Any marks on the neck? No. Dr. Jackson said the killer used his arm. Not his hands. How are you fellas recording this? Tape or wire? Tape. Here's the mic. How long have you known Mr. Steele? He was my CO. We spent three years together overseas. You see each other much? After the war, I mean? About a year ago, I called him. He promised to call me right back. I'm still waiting. <laughs> and when I found out he was a cop, I lost interest. Send the parking attendant and the other check room girl home. Yes, sir. You want to see some pictures? I don't mind. 
It'd help all of us considerably if it could be established that she left your apartment of her own volition and that you spent the rest of the night at home. Did anybody drop in or call you? Well, nobody called. Poor kid. Nobody dropped in. Phone rang once, but I didn't answer it. You mean you just let it ring? I very often do. You can ask my friends and neighbors. Hey, wait a minute. Miss Gray. Good morning, Miss Gray. Please sit down. I'm Captain Luckner. This is Sergeant Nikolai. Hello. How do you do? Sorry. No more coffee. Miss Gray, do you know this gentleman? No. Did you ever see him before? Yes, a few times. Where? At the patio apartments. We both live there. Do you know who he is? Yes. When I moved in a few days ago, Mr. Steele was pointed out to me by the manager. She was very proud of having a celebrity for a tenant. Did you see Mr. Steele last night? Yes, as I came home, I saw him going to his apartment with a girl. That girl was Mildred Atkinson. She was murdered between one and two o'clock this morning. Murdered? Yes. Strangled by the vice-like grip of an arm. You know, mugged. Yeah, just imagine you're sitting next to her in the car, and you put your arm around her neck. You're a G.I. You know judo. My man's name is Dick Steele. Oh, man. Is it not the coolest name ever? It's a really cool name for a guy who is very much not cool. <laughs> what are you talking about? Dick Steele didn't, hit, didn't hurt anybody. Oh, yeah. He didn't do it. He didn't do it, but he did hurt a lot of people. He he do be hitting people in this movie. Yeah, Dick Steele. He's a complicated character, to say the least. He is a complicated character, and the interesting thing is that the book that this is based off of by Dorothy B. Hughes, great writer, Dick Steele is actually significantly worse. So they tamed, they tamed him up for this movie. Bogart's like, I can't be that unlikable. I already have the face of a homunculus. <laughs> it's amazing to think Bogart was the leading man at one point, right? Like, that's incredible. I mean, I think Bogart's handsome. 50s handsome, to be sure. I mean, he's a fucking amazing actor. So, like... This is maybe my favorite Humphrey Bogart performance now. Oh, yeah. Full disclosure, I'd never seen this before. I got home last night from work. I lit up some marijuana and sat back and I was like, okay, hour and a half. It's about 10, 10 right now. I'll get this done just, just around like 1130. And I just sat there and within the first 10, and I'll tell you this too, I appreciate you not saying anything about this movie. If there's one subgenre of movies I love more than any type of movie, it's movies about movies. And that's what this is. He plays mm -hmm. Dick Steele, who is a writer for pictures in Hollywood and 
that's the premise of the movie is he's writing a movie while also kind of becoming like intertwined with both a woman and this case that seems to have him at the center of it. The setup for this movie is incredible. Like you don't realize that like the first 25 minutes of this movie are to set you up for what's going to be the rest of the movie. Mm -hmm. Essentially the first, I believe the first 10 minutes or so are just all set in like a bar. What's interesting about it is it's just laying the groundwork for the character of Dick Steele and for the characters around him. And essentially his agent, Mel, is trying to get him to write a script based on a book. And, you know, you have all these like side characters. You have the thespian, who's a drunk. You have the director, who's like, I think, what's his name? I forget his name. What's the director's name? That's the thing, though. It's funny you bring all these characters up. That's the genius of this movie, what they do so well. So the opening shot of this movie is him driving to this bar to meet his agent and meet the director who want to do it so he can adapt this book into a screenplay. The first time you see him is he pulls up next to a young lady who says, like, oh, you wrote the movie I was in. And the guy next next to her in the car in the car is like, hey, don't talk to my lady. And he's like, he goes, oh, that guy, you married that guy. And the guy's like, what would you say? And he's like, well, get out of the car right now. Anything to yourself like, OK, these are just two bulls like brandishing. The next time you see him in kind of an altercation is like somebody kind of like disrespects that the actor who is a friend of his, mm-hmm. who's kind of like a fall down drunk. And he pushed them back. They set this movie up to make you believe that Humphrey Bogart is the good guy. Like this movie throughout 50% of this movie, you're like, I'm pretty sure Humphrey Bogart's the good guy. Like he's got to be right. Like this movie can't have it possibly end with Bogart being this guy. But then they slow burn you throughout the other half of the movie to say, well, no, he might fucking be the bad guy. Like he might, he (laughs) might've done it. He could have done it. Like, mm-hmm. He has everything in the world. And they use little touches, too, to make you do it. And also, too, like, there's there's sequences where you're like, is he admitting to it? I don't know. It's very befuddling, but it works. Like, that's the thing. They never give you the payoff until the last moment. Yeah, it's one of those things where you get that he has a temper. But when you see it, it's all for, like... Not good reasons, but for reasons that we've seen, like, heroes in a movie do it before. Like, he's he's sticking up for a friend. He's, you know, like, a guy on the streets mad at him. By the way, in that car scene, where he's like, he's like, what's wrong with right here? And he fucking gets out of his car, and you're like, oh, this, guy's, this guy's, this guy's real. Like, this guy's a fucking, this guy's getting ready. It's, he's bowed up. And the thing is, too, what I love about this is, they give an explanation for why he is this way. It's weird that this movie talks about this without saying the words or saying the letters that apply to this. He obviously has PTSD. Yeah. Like this, obviously, all of this comes from him serving in the war because they talk about it. They say he was a great commander and people loved him, but obviously something happened over there that caused him to be this guy. Like, because someone says it's like he wasn't like this before the war. No. Yeah, which um, I think this is that amazing. He hasn't had a hit since before the war. That's true, which makes you wonder. And the premise of this movie is he goes and they say, you need to adapt this book. And he says, okay, I'll adapt the book. Before he can take the book home, there's a little hat check girl 
who is reading the book and she says, oh, Mr. Steele, it's wonderful. It's going to be a great picture. And he says to her, he goes, well, great. You've read it. Why don't you come to my place and tell me about it? And she's like, Mr. Steele. He goes, no, no, nothing untoward. I just want you to explain it to me because I don't want to read it. And she does. And everything looks like it's going well. And he sends her off with like 20 bucks and said, which back in those days, that had to be like $70. She's like, well, thank you, Mr. Steele. And he's like, absolutely. He goes, like, I'm going to write it up. He goes, I have a clear vision of what it's going to be. He gets a call the next morning at like 5 a.m. And his buddy, who's now a detective who used to be a cop, says, I need you to come down to the station. That girl was murdered. And they never get into the details of the murder other than she was strangled and then pushed from a moving car, which is rough. Would For her, yeah, I'm okay. Not that. You know what I mean? She had to die so the plot could move on. Like, that sucks to say, but like. This fictional Sadly, character had to go, yeah. yeah. This fictional character had to go down so they could so they could keep doing the plot. And the head of the department says, it's him. Like it's obviously him. And Bogart has it all set up. Like Bogart's like, it's not me. Like he goes, like, I could have done it. He goes, Absolutely. He goes, but I didn't. He goes, like, here's the reasons why. And he lays it out like so perfectly to the point where you're like, is this motherfucker Tom Ripley? Is he just like got this thing so set up that he's like tried to set up the perfect murder to see if he can get away with it? It's one of those things where it's like, I wouldn't be surprised if he did that, but like, and I know it's part of it just being Humphrey Bogart, but he just seems so tired. You know what I mean? I wouldn't even say he seems so tired. I would say like, he is the consistency of a powder keg and like, you're just waiting for that next wave of anger to come over. And the only person who can say that they saw him, this girl, and, like, can kind of prove his innocence is his neighbor, Gloria Graham, who plays yes. Laurel Gray. And yes. she comes into the police and she said, no, he was there. I saw him. She left without him. And the two of them kind of strike up a relationship. And he comes across this this girl. And she, I guess for, I guess better way to put it is she becomes his muse and he starts writing again in that way that he used to yeah and the movie really goes through i'm not going to say pains but really does paint the portrait of their relationship in a way that makes you 100 percent believe that they are actually in love in the real life and part of it is because Gloria Graham was married to Nicholas Ray at the time. Really? Yeah. Oh, I thought Nicholas um, Ray was a bit of a fancy boy, but I was wrong. Nope. No, Ben, he laid pipe. He laid pipe all over town. <laughs> Nick Ray was married to four different women. <laughs> so I was right. I would say don't look up why, I mean, I guess do, but Gloria Graham and Nick Ray, the ending of their relationship is, I will just say, she would end up getting married to the son of Nicholas Ray say uh, years what? later. Yeah. Well, that's And a... according to Nick Ray, it was pretty untoward. So she... She's the bad guy. Yes. She is the picture of what you want to protect in this movie. Yeah. Like, you're worried for her 
from like the minute you're you're just sitting there and you're like, he's the subject of a murder investigation. Are you sure you want to go out with him? Are we certain this is the best modus operandi for you? He literally is being accused of murder. Yeah. It's like one of those things where it's like very clearly like <sighs> you are falling in love with the bad boy, but the bad boy is obvious. Oh, fucking Badlands. Where it's like, yeah. you're kind of attracted to this guy because he is dynamite, which is what how Mel describes it. But, like, eventually, dynamite's got to go off. Yeah. You have, to take the, you have to take the good with the bad. Yeah, you do have to take the good with the bad. Yeah, that's kind of what he says. Like, he has to say, like, he said he's great, but you have to understand he's got highs and lows. That's the other thing, too. He's a manic depressive. Like, he's got incredibly high highs, but he's got incredibly low lows. Like... And the thing is, too, like, she's one of his highs. But the thing is, like, he's also incredibly suspicious. Like, he's not a guy who's like, who's like, yeah, go out with your friends, whatever. Like, he needs to be around her, like, every second of the day to make sure, like, nothing's happening that he doesn't like. I'm going to say not a great one-two punch, you know? It's like mixing, like, gasoline with fire. These two are just going to cause problems for each other. And... Unfortunately, like they're going to ride it until it doesn't work. And that's kind of what happens. So the movie is all about the question of, did he do it? Like, that's the whole premise of the movie is, did he kill this hat check girl? And is Gloria Graham living with a murderer? Because like there are moments too where, like I said, every moment of this movie, you are back and forth. This movie is like a tennis match. That ball is the concept of innocence versus guilt. And it's going over the net to guilty, to innocent, to guilty, to innocent. Your eyes are just going back and forth. And it it fucking works. And also you have the subplot of like his friend is a cop who's trying to investigate him. You have him trying to write the script. The movie's just fucking perfect, honestly. Like, I remember putting this on. I was like an hour and a half. This is great. And like the movie never loses steam. No, no. And it's because it Bogart. keeps ratcheting up tension. <clears throat> it's because Bogart. Bogart's amazing in this movie. I said before, this is a this is a stretch movie for him. Like. He's not playing like the typical like square jawed like detective who's like, I'm in the right and I know that someone did wrong. It's like, well, I might have done wrong and you're going to all have to deal with that. The book is is apparently a lot different, but it keeps the main like one of the main spines of the story is mm -hmm. that the murder Dick Steele, former World War II veteran in Los Angeles, is helping his detective friend who he who who he fought in the war with but is like it's like he is the serial killer oh so they change which it. is interesting so they do change it they make him innocent and apparently that was nick ray's idea the original ending was that i believe brub nikolai was supposed to come in and essentially be like you're innocent but Diggs would have just murdered Gloria Graham at that ah. moment, like, as he walks in. And so it's like, you're cleared of the other killing, but you're under arrest for this one. Nick Ray kind of hated the ending. He's just like, it's too sewed up. It's Oh, so you're not saying he's guilty of the first murder in the book. He kills Gloria Graham's character at the end, and then the cop shows up and arrests him for that. That oh, doesn't no 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 in in book he is he's guilty of all the murders. <laughs> oh, he does do the first in the book murder. he's a serial killer. But in the original ending to the movie, he would have been innocent of the first murder, but he would have killed Gloria Graham's character. It doesn't work as well. 
I don't think it works very well. No, I think it's a bad ending. And I think Nick Ray knew that. And what they did is he, he shot the original ending, was like, this sucks. Went back and with Graham and Humphrey Bogart, improvised a new ending. The ending works because you are so driven insane by the fact that like you're like, well, did he do it? And when you finally, because you get the answer before he does. And the ending of that movie is so interesting because it's like, essentially she gets just fucking scared and she's like, okay, I'm going to run. I'm going to, I'm going to get on a plane to New York and he'll never find me because you could just do that in the fifties. You could just disappear and no one would find you, especially if you went across the country. He tells her like, you're not going anywhere. You're going to be with me. And they get the phone call. It's their friend. Who's the cop. And he says, you didn't do it. The boyfriend confessed like he did it. And the woman, Gloria, takes the call and she says, this call would have been so nice like yesterday. But like, unfortunately, it means nothing now. And it's a look on both of their faces of like, we can't go back. Like the relationship is is over. And like you said, what makes this movie so effective is watching Humphrey Bogart walk out of her apartment and go back to his and just knowing that like, the lonely place is him. Like, he is the lonely place. Like, mm-hmm. nobody can be around him because he is this guy, and there's no way he's going to change. He is the titular bye-bye man. He's the empty man. I also just think... <sighs> Bogart's eyes in this movie. Mm-hmm. There's a sadness in just, like, every scene. I think a lot about now the scene after he hits Mel in the restaurant Ugh. and the two kind of solemnly decide to break up their working relationship and just the look on his face is just the, so sad the only time there isn't a sadness is when he is describing the plot of the murder to the cop and his wife when he has them sit down to act it out the lighting on his face in that scene is the closest he has ever come to being Peter Lorre in a movie. Because essentially, that's what he's doing. He shifts away from, like, the good-looking leading man movie into kind of this weird, off-putting scumbag. hmm If this movie had opened up with Bogart looking at the screen being like, you're not gonna like me. Just deal with it. Like, that would have at least been a cue to the audience. But what Nicholas Ray does so well is he forces you to pick a side in this movie. Because... Throughout the movie, I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, no, he didn't do it. Of course he didn't do it. The movie doesn't make sense if he did it. And then, like, there's part of me that's like, no, the movie makes total sense if he did it. Like, in fact, I think he did it. Like, that's the beauty is you're it, not sure till the very end. It's one of those things where it's like, I by the end, you're like, okay, well, he didn't do it, but he is capable of doing it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what like, I mean? that's, like, that, that's never in question. You're like, oh, it's, it's so beautifully set up. <sighs> What we're saying here is if you haven't seen In a Lonely Place, you should watch In a Lonely it's, Place. It's, it's very really good. good. Speaking of good, it's what is your favorite good. scene? Oh, man. I They're all so good. I got to say, I really love the picnic scene on the beach where Sylvia accidentally is like, yeah, she was talking about getting married the other day. Whoopsies. <laughs> Love anybody that basically is like, yeah. It's a movie, too, where you're never quite sure, like, who to believe. Exactly. And it keeps you guessing. Like I said, this is amazing to think that two years later he would do this after they live by night. Like, 
this is almost like such a step up in some ways. He's also working with one of the hottest actors on the planet and uses him in a way that no one else has ever used him like this. I would say the closest mm-hmm. is Houston and Treasure of the Sierra Madre, but even that character is more straightforward than this one. Like in that one, you're like, well, you're kind of a dick. Like it, whereas in this one, you're like, is he? What's interesting is the next year, Ogie wins for, for the African Queen, which is in its way kind of an interesting, de- not departure from from for Bogart, but it, it is sort of. I'm not going to say, like, the last great role. I think it's, like, the transition into, like, late Bogart. Because he he dies, like, a few years after that. I think this is, in my opinion, his best performance. Like, without a doubt. Just because it, I think it's the most... For, for the 50s, it is one of the deepest characters. Like, one of the most complex characters I think anybody was given at that time period. And he absolutely fucking kills it. I mean, like, I almost don't think I can say it's the best role he's ever done because I think the Maltese Falcon, like top to bottom is like a near perfect movie. And that movie is near perfect because of how good he is at playing that, like paint by numbers detective. But like the way he handles it is so good. I mean, you have Casablanca in there. You have. Key Largo, High Key Largo is also great. Dark Passage is is incredible. I I don't know. I just think big, Dick Steele big is like sleep as well. But yeah, I mean yeah. this is this is by far the most departure of a Bogart character. Like this is like if you took all the charm out of a Bogart character. You still have the charm. You just also have all of the pain and all of the negativity, and it's he's scary. You know what I mean? Yeah, you feel he could snap at any moment. At any moment. How would you pitch this to someone? Hey, you want to see the best American noir of the 50s? Wow, you think this is, you think this is the best American noir of the 50s, huh? I, it's up there. I mean, I did say it earlier that I think this is on par with Sunset Boulevard. And I... Sunset Boulevard, you know the ending of. Yeah. This comes out the same year as Sunset Boulevard. And he wasn't nominated and or anything. And All About Eve. And All About Damn. Eve. Damn. Damn, that's impressive. If someone's, like, gun to your head, what are some of the best noirs of the 50s? It is on a short list. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's kind of amazing, too. Like, I think the reason maybe this didn't get the reception it did at the time is, too, is people were expecting a different kind of Bogart. And they're like, oh, I don't know about this. Yeah. I mean, okay, gun to my head. You're like top five, fifty piece noirs. Probably like this, Sunset Boulevard, Touch of Evil, DOA, Night of the Hunter, maybe Gun Crazy. I know that's six. I don't. Yeah, it's up there. It's it's really yeah. up there. It's fucking it's, great. It's a, yeah, it's very impressive. Maybe I'll walk it back a little bit. Do you want to see the darkest ending to a noir from the fifties? Yeah. Yeah, that might even be true, too. I mean, like, you didn't even throw Falcon on there, and I think Maltese Falcon deserves to be on that list. Well, uh, what would Falcon you pair from the 50s, Ben? Isn't it? 41. Holy crap. That movie well, feels... That movie does check, not that's feel like... not the 50s. You know, it does, I, 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 Maltese see, Falcon I see what does you're feel... doing. <laughs> it feels Maltese time. Maltese Falcon does feel like... it. Yeah, 
it does feel about a decade later than it probably should have. Who was right? 1941. There you go. It's the first John Houston movie. Thank you. I know that, Mr. Man. I'm not stupid, Uh, you know. I just wanted to do Kathy Bates again. I I like that performance. Well, what would you pair this with? Once again, a lot I could pair this with. Badlands is up there. A ton of stuff. I think I'm going to pair this with... I had it, and and I lost it. I had it, and I lost it. I already paired a movie with High Sierra today, Tyler. You can't do it twice. Sure you can. You could pair it with Badlands again, too, if you wanted. That's true. I think I'd pair it with High Sierra. Interesting. Okay. High Sierra is about how love is stupid. <laughs> and that also that stars Ida the Pita as well. So we've come full circle. I'll say this. You know what I would pair it with? I would pair it with another. We spoke of him earlier. Another Robert Altman movie. I would pair this with The Player. Ooh. Kind or of both have you could pair it with Sunset Boulevard. I just didn't want to take the, the easy the easy win with Sunset Boulevard. That's not that's not that's not an easy win at all. Those are two great movies that should be paired, especially considering both of these movies came out in the in 1950. That's such that's a perfect double feature. If you want to make it a triple feature, you can also yeah. watch All About Eve, which is, also came out the same year. What do you give in yeah. a lonely if place? You, I give in a lonely place fucking five stars. What what, yeah. what is this? Yeah, it's five. When I finished this last night, I was like, oh, that was nice. I get to watch. Like, And here's how you can tell it's a five-star movie, too. It was about 11.45 when I finished this last night. I'm usually pretty done with everything by 11.45. I'm pretty beat. And I was awake and alert watching this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is the sign of a five-star movie. It's It's a five across the board. I don't think anyone would disagree with that once you've seen it. And it's a movie, too, where, like, once I finished it, I said to myself, I'm like, am I just going to put this back on at some point, like pretty soon into the future? Like, I think I might show this to her next weekend. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just be like, hey, and just well, I was be like, watching hey, it. See what happens when you upset a guy? You see? See what happens? See what happens? Up. Okay. Um, <laughs> Come on, show it to me. I was watching the same it. Thing. Let's see what happens. I was watching it and I was like, oh, yeah, I could just watch this forever. This is great. Yeah. I remember what I was going to pair the movie with, if you want to hear it. Go ahead. I was going to pair it with a different Nick Ray movie. I was going to pair it with Bigger Than Life, which stars... Not Tony Curtis. What is the fucking... What's this guy's name? Stars James Mason, Barbara Rush, and Walter Matthau, and it's about a man who becomes dependent on a miracle drug and much like In a Lonely Place, starts to become just fucking angry. It's a big old ball of anger. That's me, James Mason. I'm in the movie um, it has it <laughs> it has one of the worst trailers of all time which is wow. literally like a close zoom in on James Mason being like I'm James Mason and I want to tell you about the new movie I'm doing bigger than life it's a terrible trailer and it proves to me that trailers have always been bad well speaking of trailers what are the coming attractions for next week for the third week of noir november Coming attractions. We're doing 70s Neo Noir once again, baby. And it's my turn to pick. And Ben told me that I had to pick. I didn't tell you that, first of all. I said, you know, it would be nice. That's what I said. Tell you. I don't tell you anything on this podcast. If I told you things, we would never have sat down and talked about body melt, but we did. So I don't tell you that anything. Is true. 
Yeah, I don't <laughs> tell true. you shit. Yeah. <laughs> tell you. No, you're but right. I, 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 I want that, like, physical assault was just grabbing a woman by the shoulders in the 50s. <laughs> like, that was the, <laughs> that was the extent of physical assault. That was all that they could show, you know? I also love, too, that he can't go into her bedroom until she says it's okay. Because I was sitting there, I was like, just go in the fucking bed. I'm like, oh, right. People had standards back then. Head Cannon, he was a vampire. For the, I guess it actually would be the first movie since it's night from 1971. But we're going to do the classic black exploitation neo noir film written, co produced, scored, edited, directed by, and starring Melvin Van Peebles. His son, Mario Van Peebles, also appears in a small role. The film tells a picturesque story of a poor black man fleeing from white police authorities. Sweet, sweatbacks, badass song. I've heard of this movie. I know nothing about it. It is so, the movie that I that starts the black exploitation movement. Oh, there you go. So it's both a noir and a genre starter as well. And then from 1973, we're going to do The Long Goodbye, which is a great movie. Another movie where I get to talk about how great Robert Altman is, which, you know, I love to do. So for next week, Sweet Sweatback's Badass Song. And The Long Goodbye. Two movies I'm very aware of, but have never actually sat down and watched. And by this time next week, we'll have those checked off, and I'm sure I'll be that much better for it. Well, guys, you can follow us at TWGTFPod on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow me at ETCritic on Twitter and at MovieLovingLucha87 on Instagram, respectfully. Tyler, is there anywhere they can follow you? They can follow me to a lonely place. Nailed it. Oh, so fucking happy. That's that's it. I was like, I was like, come on, it's such a layup. Just just say to a lonely place. Yeah, they can follow you to a lonely place. Well, for TWGTF, two white guys talking film, I've of course been your host, Ben. And I'm Dixon Steele. And remember, guys, if you come to our little movie box along the way and you see two cars pulled up next to each other and they're arguing, you know what? Just stay out of it. Those guys will sort it out. One of them's a football player. I'm sure he can defend. Oh, my God, that guy's being beaten to death. I was born when she kissed me. I died when she left me. I lived for a few weeks while she left me. Talking, 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 Don't be long, don't you come to me if things go wrong. That's your red wagon. That's your red wagon. So just keep dragging your red, red wagon along. When you're making your bed, remember you. If you're gonna play horses
University level, like where Freud studied and have all those people looking at you and checking up on you. That's the kind of help you need. Not the once a week for 80 bucks. No, you need a team. So I watched In a Lonely Place and was so jacked up from watching In a Lonely Place that I was like, I need to come down. So I went into my DVD collection, my Blu-ray collection, and pulled out the Decalogue and turned on and turned on one like, I think episode six. And it was just it was such a good come down that I, I was like, okay, now I can go to sleep. I, I watched Seinfeld to go to sleep, but sure, we all we all go about it in a different way, I'm sure. You no, not... no, 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 yeah, no. Decalogue for me. I, I love Chris Klausky, or not Chris Klausky. Well, I do love Chris Klausky, but I also love Chris, Chris off, whatever. And I love Chris Christopherson. Burn up. Bam, 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 bam